0: Hello, everyone. Uh, This one was recorded less than a week ago and is being edited in the early hours of the morning before it's released. How ridiculous. Of course it's ridiculous. It's Toby Haddox. Who's round? Well, hello, everybody. It's a very special festive Who's round. Um, uh, so I'm going to ask uh, its victim, who's probably fed up of talking to doc- about Doctor Who, why he's doing so and who he is. Uh, hello, I'm, I'm Stephen Moffat. And,
1: uh, and a long, long time ago, I <laughs> used to run Doctor <laughs> Who. Uh, it's the only thing that anyone ever wants to talk to me about. But really, it was it, it's such a long time ago, like, I don't really remember any of it. <laughs> I think it was largely live in my
0: day, you know. <laughs> That's it, we made it much more challenging. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've got a difficult thing to do because uh, I'd, I'd like to talk about... Um, the Christmas episode, but I haven't seen it, so I don't want you to ruin it for me. Because um, I've remained. Well, I don't want
1: to. I don't want to ruin it for anyone else. So <laughs> I, or is
0: this going out? It, is, am I am will... talking from the future. You are talking from the future. I am. Oh, exciting! As far as this podcast is concerned, the only person that hasn't seen the Christmas episode is me. Um, okay. Right. So, um, what a great idea! Um, an idea that I'm not sure anybody knew they wanted until until it happened, and then everyone went, "Well, of course." So when did it come to you? (laughs) Um, It is available on
1: video the exact moment it came to me. Um, When we were doing the New York Comic Con just over a year ago, and I was wondering how on earth I was going to handle the extra episode I just landed myself with, um, the Christmas episode, which I hadn't originally intended to do. Um, And somebody asked, what doctors would you like the Peter Capaldi doctor to meet? Something, some question of that kind. And I said, look, writing writing multi-doctor stories is actually rather challenging because it's just the same man several times. It doesn't really, there isn't really a lot for them to talk about. The only interesting doctor to bring back in some ways would be William Hartnell, but he's not returning my phone calls. (laughs) And Peter said, well, we could get David Bradley. And I thought, oh yeah, oh yeah, there is another first doctor that people accept, who has already been sanctified. And so I thought, yeah, that's what we'll do. We'll bring, we'll bring back David Bradley. And the Doctor will contemplate himself from the entire length of his adventures on television, so to speak.
0: And are you conscious when you're writing this episode, in particular? it's your last episode, do you have a yeah. sort of, it must surely be tempting to go, now I want to make that point, or I want to settle that score, or I want to do that reference. Uh, I mean, how, how, how do you contemplate the extra thing of, well, this is my last episode, or do you have to be very professional and get rid of all of that?
1: Well, to be honest the demands of the job remove all that you know i mean that's the kind of thing you can think about years later and make up an interview some sort of elegy to yourself it's just not true at the time i had a script to write and doctor who scripts are very hard and i was very tired and i was just trying to think of a story and make it work and get some good jokes in there and you know you you just do the job and the job fills the sky it's huge it's always massively difficult doing Doctor Who so although I said at the time well here it is, the last time we do this the last time I go to a uh, read through all that it's, <laughs> there is no narrative content in anything being the last there is isn't the first but not the last I just did what I'd always been doing for about well for almost 10 years and then I never did it again <laughs> you know, there wasn't anything to talk about so, no, it really didn't inform it. I kept trying to have the appropriate emotions, but they just sort of didn't happen.
0: So, even when you'd finished, did not, you know, showrunner, writer, um, you know, television professional, all of that aside, did you, did you not have a moment where Stephen, you know, the little boy who's grown up the loving Doctor Who, who's become the man in charge of Doctor Who, puts that all away for the last time? Did you, did you not have a moment? Um,
1: well, look, here is how stupid this job is. Uh, and and how stupid the aftermath of this job will be. When did it end? When did it end? When I handed the script in? No, because I carried on working on it. I worked quite hard on that script while we were shooting it. I actually worked quite hard on that script while we were editing it. We were still editing it relatively recently. We worked quite hard on it as we uh, finished the dub and all the special effects. That's really recent. Uh, The other night, I, I performed my last ever function as Doctor Who showrunner, uh, and did the uh, the press launch. So I should have walked out of there with that feeling of, well, that's all done. But slightly halting that feeling and complicating it was the fact I knew I had to get up at 6 the following morning to a, go
0: to a comic relief breakfast with five Doctor Whos. Oh, yes. I saw so
1: the, the pictures. So the next day, I was sitting next to Matt and david and colin and Sylvester and uh, and and peter davison and with uh peter capaldi on skype and paul McGann's got right in the middle of everything that i have ever done so you know and you know what i'm doing now what i've just broken off from doing is i'm writing a novelization of day of the doctor so at what sense do those toys go back in the cupboard You're I'm n- not the showrunner anymore that's it <laughs> you n- if i'm brutally honest, uh, and one has to be, um, I there is no part of me that's wanting to head to Cardiff right now and be planning and working on the next series of Doctor Who. I've, I've burned that out of myself, I've done it. It was exhausting and it was brilliant and I loved it and I love thinking back on those days, but no, they're done and that's absolutely fine. My connection with Doctor Who, however, is of course forever, so why worry?
0: Well, uh, I think it's, can you can you rationalize the fact that you're a, a, a you know a, a, you've, you've run a show so um, you know you're, you you're in charge you're a, a, a television professional that sort of thing but every every interview I've seen you give about doctor Who you planned to leave ages ago and it's you're like Al Pacino every time I try to get out they drag me back in so uh, <laughs> how, why did you keep saying yes what's wrong with you?
1: Why did I keep going uh, going back? Um, because actually as Russell understood far better than I did, because Russell understands everything far better than I do, it takes a long time to leave Doctor Who. You can't just say, well, that about wraps it up for me. Uh, then everyone just looks at you blankly and says, yeah, how do we do next series? And you say, well, I I don't know. It's not my job. And then you realize it is your job because you're the showrunner and you've got to keep the, the show running until you're able to jump off at a platform. You know, that's what you have to do. Uh, so, I mean, it was not a hardship. It was not a misery. I loved working on the show. I, I, I mean, there wasn't an episode I didn't enjoy making. Uh, I was. It was more a restlessness about wanting to write other things and to do other things. And for my entire life, every day not to be about one slash two shows. Um, but you know, I. I it, it was hardly a pain. It wasn't. I mean, it was. Individual moments were tough, but the. It was a joyful job and I know it'll define me for the rest of my life, so I was no I wasn't hurrying out the door, to say the least. I did keep getting my coat caught in the door on my exit and having to stumble back in and do a bit more. But you know what? So what? What fun. What fun.
0: And um, you well, you mentioned Russell. Uh, you you took over a very successful show, which had a you know a, a big individual stamped all over it. Um, yeah. what, what did you what when you took it over? What were your thoughts about what you wanted to do to make it? You know, with a with a conscious decision to go, but this will make it more like my show than than his. And that's not... never give it a thought. No,
1: never. I mean, no. Uh, and I doubt Russell ever thought about that, but I haven't, we've never spoken about it. I never thought about that. thought about trying to make Doctor Who, which I never regarded as mine. I couldn't regard it as mine because I grew up with, grew up watching it. It's like being, the specialness of the job is that, uh, is that it isn't yours, but you're handed this incredibly precious national heirloom and you're, uh, and you curate it for a while. You look after it for a while and that's it. Incredibly important, serious job, I didn't think about making it mine. You never have to think. I mean, I suppose, in certain respects, it would seem like like I did because of there would be a particular style to it. But that just happens. You don't think about that, and it, and that, that and that ultimately, that style is the is the result of lots of different people working on the show. So no, I never, I couldn't give a damn about the. Uh, you know, putting a new stamp on it. I remember at the time Piers Wenger, who was executing my first two series with me, um, said, we need to make a statement about what kind of Doctor Who you're going to make. And I was saying, I'm going to make the kind with the blue box and the Time Lord. That's what I'm going to make. It'll be different every week. But he insisted on something, and he suggested fairy tale. So we trotted that one out endlessly. Uh, It's more like a fairy tale. It's not. I mean, it's just that if you choose to look for every clue of uh clue about fairy taleness, you'll find them, but you'll find it in every year out Doctor Who. Because Doctor Who's about a wizard in a magic box who's got a magic wand. You don't really have to stretch for the fairy tale aspect. So that was all
0: just nonsense for interviews. I never thought about any of that. I just wanted to make a good show. And I was watching um I was watching the end of uh um, not the series gone the series before I forget that series nine series nine uh and uh, which, uh, and um I'm interested in your take on the doctor there's such a sadness to, to 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 the doctor sometimes when you write him is that is that due to the fact that he he travels so long and and, and so on his own and 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 what is it that appeals to you to to bring that aspect to the character in some of the the bigger episodes, I mean, the, 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 and the fact that he and, I was really interested in him and Clara's um, relationship, in, in the fact that the, the real sadness is is when people don't tell each other the truth, um, often for the best of reasons, which is painfully sad. Well, it's, just, it's an aspect of the character that's always
1: there. It's always there, the sadness, and the crippling sadness he feels at the end of all his friendships i mean you can see that at the end of the green death
0: mm.
1: you know and uh, perhaps uh, perhaps even a bit of romantic longing there too Well, that more than a bit i would say um you can see that you know he knows whenever he makes a friend that it's postponed bereavement because he is going to lose them he must because he's going to live for hundreds of years maybe thousands of years uh, Four and a half billion years according to heaven's end he's going to lose everything. so but naturally being the doctor and being and having that childish stubborn streak to him he tries to make summer last forever he grabs the hand of the person closest to him and he never wants to let go and that's of course that's sad of course it is how could you write about someone who is functionally or at least narratively immortal Without writing about the sadness of you always being the one who's still there.
0: Uh, you, well, I'll tell you something. We have a we have a female Doctor Who um, ca- about to visit us shortly. Do you think we'd have a female? I don't think we'd have a female Doctor Who if it wasn't for certain things that you had done up to this point. Do, do you do you accept that? Um, I think it helped. I mean, I have to be, uh,
1: pick my words carefully here because uh, I said something about this quite recently, and it became a bunch of headlines about how I blamed Brexit or something. It's not what I said! Even if you detached your lazy eye from the headline and looked at the actual passage, it's not what I was saying. My point was this, is do you have to (coughs) lay the groundwork for a female doctor? Is that necessary? Do Do the audience need that? Was the point I was making. And I think right now, most of the audience don't. I think most of the audience don't. I think they're ready for it. And in fairness, Patrick Patrick Troughton turned up with no foreshadowing of the fact that William Hartnell could change his face. So you could argue you can do it without that uh, groundwork being prepared. Preparing, however, the groundwork does two things. It helps the people who are less keen on the idea and these people aren't all evil, misogynist people. They're just, some of them are, some of them are women, some of them are feminists, some of them just don't fancy the idea. If you, it helps those people, if you sort of build it into the show, it, it, you know, into the structure of the show. If you start saying the Doctor's gender isn't always the same, and maybe hasn't always been the same. And if you also see the master, who's the character most like the Doctor, but evil, become Missy and it really works and you never have any trouble accepting her as the same person as him. It helps those people. And also it's a bit of a drum roll, isn't it? It's it becomes uh the question changes from why don't you cast a woman as the doctor to why haven't you cast a woman as the doctor? You know, because look, it's part of the history of the show. And while I was routinely savaged, uh for not doing it earlier. It hadn't been part of the show until I put it in. Um, however, uh, I think I think having uh, seen a glimpse of Jodie in the role, you know, probably most of the audience would have gone with it if we just sprung it on them. You know, if we just said, hey, come on, let's do it now. So uh, I don't know whether it was necessary. It probably helped a minority of the audience accept the change, is what I would say. Um, and possibly did it built up excitement for the idea because Michelle Gomez had scored such a hit as Missy that it seemed like it made it look like a good choice, if you see what I mean. But it was Chris that did that, not me. So all credit to him, no credit to me.
0: Now, you've been a Doc 2 fan as as, as long as I have. Um, have you have you always, Thought it was a a good idea for there to be a female doctor, or were you like certainly I was when I was younger? You know, up hand on heart, I would go, no, no, doctor is a man; he must never be a woman. Did you did you have a Damascene conversion, or or uh, are you just more progressive uh, than younger Toby was? Um, I think when it was first mooted, it was Tom Baker uh,
1: was giving way to uh, Peter Davison, and it was mooted either by Tom or I think actually by John Nathan Turner. Uh, just to get some, our cunning way of getting column inches, maybe the doctor could be a woman this time. And I think I went quite quickly from, but, but, but that, is, that, is that silly? Is that wrong? Why would that? And then just starting to think, ah, maybe it actually would be quite interesting. Remember my mum and dad sort of listing people who'd be good as the doctor. And you think, yeah, do you know what? That, would, that, would, that might work. And then having got myself to the point uh, of thinking, do you know what? I think a female doctor could work. <laughs> they cast Peter Davison. And I was far more horrified that he was too young than I would have been at the casting of, uh, of an older woman. I was horrified at his youth, said the man. when day cast <laughs> Matt Smith. So, you know, I think, in, I think if you're a fan of something, it's all right to be small c conservative about it to you know, say well i like the show the way it is do you have to come along and change everything to which any decent storyteller should say yes because the show changes anyway it gets older and you get more used to it so we have to make it new again like it was when you first watched it so there's that small c conservative is natural for devoted fans of shows there's nothing wrong with it i think it gets nasty when everyone is accused of horrific bigotries because they don't agree with the casting in a television show, that's wrong. I think the hounding of Peter Davison for making the lightest remark about it was horrific. I don't know when liberals started to think that the word liberal meant acutely intolerant of anyone else's viewpoint. They should look Mm. up the word liberal in the bloody dictionary, shouldn't they?
0: Yes, well, there has been the the, the battles on social media, as you say, from from people... It's, well, that, I mean, that's something you had to contend with. You left Twitter, didn't you? Uh, do, do, you think we'll, do you think we'll resolve our relationship with social media in just that it's such a young medium, with we don't quite know how to handle it yet?
1: I think what we have to resolve isn't social media, it's people's behaviour. It's people's, uh, and because any new space that you create for human beings to interact with each other is first occupied by bullies. Because reasonable people don't try to dominate a room, that's not their nature. A reasonable, kind person just walks into a room and says, hello, I'm so-and-so. A bully walks into a room and wants to dominate it. So every every space that we create to talk to each other, bullies blunder in and tell everybody what they should think. And, you know, the bullies don't exclusively belong to the right, um, they Well, my God, there's a lot of bullies on the left too. I say that with great regret because I'm obviously a diehard lefty, but I am horrified at the the people who are so sure of their moral high ground they mount a machine gun on it to mow down anyone who dares disagree with them. I find it disturbing. It's not a phenomenon particularly of social media. It's a phenomenon of not policing that kind of behaviour. If there is a pup... That is dominated by really unpleasant people shouting over everyone else. You stop going to that pub until the owner of the pub says, "You know what? I'm not putting up with that." And those guys are barred, and those guys are out, and all those nice, diffident people can come in and have a have a nice drink. We have to police these things. Bullies cannot be allowed to dominate. This will be characterised by somebody listening to this right now as me saying, "You're not um, that I'm afraid of criticism." I'm not. I'm disgusted by abuse and bullying. And that goes on all the time. Inside the fandom of Doctor Who, I show about a man who would never, ever do any of those things. Update, a show about a woman who would never, ever <laughs> do any of those things.
0: <laughs> Stephen Moffat in Doctor Who Gender Blunder.
1: Um... Yes, no, there's going to be a few of those to get used to using the they pronoun, but it doesn't work in all circumstances.
0: It's tricky. It's, I, I hadn't expected the conversation to go this way, and I'm, I'm pleased that it as it's It's interesting, so I'd like to tap slightly further on that, because you hit upon something very interesting about um, sort of liberal bullying, which should be an oxymoron. Um, yeah. And particularly as a writer, um, I don't know if you saw the bruhaha about Rita Sue and Bob Two being potentially pulled um, from the Royal Court because it's about grooming, let's a play very much of its time and and since since when do, do, do the sort of the sentinels of the national conversation um, say, ah but there's certain things that you can't say, it, it, which I understand as a comic, you know coming from, you know, when, when I was growing up and Bernard Manning was doing racist material there was a sort of, well we have to police this slightly because it's dangerous but now I see comics The League of Gentlemen got censured the other day because of Barbara the, the transgender character yeah. so we're at a very Interesting point. Where, you know, how do we? Where even, you know, Mark Gaitis is not obviously not an illiberal person, and yet he finds, you know, himself having to defend his right, you know, his his right. his it's writing. It's, it's uh,
1: freedom of speech. I mean, first of all, freedom of speech doesn't mean just for you; it means for other people that don't like you. So that's one thing that's uh, that's really important about it. Um I don't know. It's. It's terrible. We talk about, I remember uh, some idiot columnist or other uh, writing that the BBC had no choice but to cast a female doctor because they lived in fear of, uh, of the liberals. And I sat there with my head in my hands thinking, no one is living in fear of liberals. <laughs> I mean, Brexit, Donald Trump, the entire world has gone the other way. And while I think it would be wrong to attribute that to the fact that the liberal wing of humanity appears to have lost his tiny mind, it doesn't help that the voice of the left has become sanctimonious, ridiculous, and illogical, and full of spite and hatred. Uh, It does not help. It does not help. I mean, I'm embarrassed. You mean when you when you when you admit that you're left wing, you sort of want to put your hands up saying, "Yeah, but I'm one of the nice ones." Okay, <laughs> I, I some of my best friends are Tories, and I I hugely admire many Conservative politicians. I am not. I do not think that the job of a Labour voter is to hate everybody in the Tory party. I think that's that's idiotic self-evidently idiotic it's a conversation it's not so su- you're not being football supporters you're not supporting your side against the other side who are all monsters you're having an intelligent conversation and disagreeing with people whose hearts and minds are every bit as pure in their intent as yours that's what's going on of course there are monsters on both sides of the argument we ignore the monsters and we get on with being decent human beings who disagree with each other
0: and uh, uh, after that um, Cybermen um, so, <laughs> but, but ha, how much of this uh, um, in, it's, it's very difficult when you talk to people who've written Doctor you know, I've, I've tried to do this with Terence Dix and say you know and, and your attitudes obviously you, know, in, 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 you, you, you put them into your work and he just goes no it's just a massive coincidence the curse of Peladon's about uh, entry into the Federation when we were entering the foreign market you know, I think yeah. oxygen is quite a blatant um, critique of capitalism. Um, uh, again, looking at the the, 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 the the regeneration, the first male-to-female regeneration we actually witnessed in Doctor Who, you go the whole hog, you have a white male um, changing into a black woman. I'm glad that both were bald. You're flying the flag for my people there. Um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> that should have been the first
1: line. It should have been. <laughs> oh, What's going on <laughs> <laughs>
0: Bald again. <Yeah. laughs> I mean, when can I ever have hair? <laughs> Actually, the put it. No, in the, that. Put it in the novelisation. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, I mean, does that stuff just go in by osmosis? Is there anything you've consciously written where you thought, and I know because sometimes when you're just writing something, you go, oh, that will be apposite to something that's going on now. But there, have you ever been driven to write a story or a piece of a story in response to something that's, that's going on, you know, at the time? not really but that doesn't mean that
1: you don't do it you don't you do it because these things are in the air around you these are the conversations that are going around your silly head you're part of that so you can't help writing about what's going on everything you do is a reflection of the world around you even something as balmy as dr who so yes yes that's why often people think that one story uh or one story is ripped off from another story you say no they were written at the same time that was just what we were all interested in at the time so yeah it can absolutely be a sort of coincidence but how do you not write about things like that when they are all around you my rules on doctor who are remember the doctor is not a vehicle for anyone's political views and the Doctor himself would be helpless with laughter at the idea that he's supposed to be left-wing or right-wing or any of these things. He would think that's idiotic and primitive. Of course he's uh, not very happy about capitalism, but look at the man. Look at the man. He doesn't actually own anything he hasn't stolen. So why why would he think capitalism was good? He'd sneer at it every chance he gets because he's a, he's a... A thieving, wandering maniac. Um, so that's a legitimate view of his. One should not mistake that for the view of Jamie Matheson or the view of Stephen Moffat. Because you know, I actually think capitalism can work. Um, you know, you know, capitalism informed by compassion can work. Just as communism, informed by compassion, can work. Can work, And indeed any political system will work, provided it's informed by compassion, because informed by compassion is the important bit, and the other word doesn't really matter. That's really my view. But the doctor's view, of course, is what the hell are you all handing bits of paper over for so you can have a new iPad? Are you morons? <laughs> So, I mean, we're writing him. We're not writing us. I mean, the other point I, I tend to make about this is if you're expressing liberal views, your own liberal views, within a TV show, if they are creeping into the fabric of it because they're part of you rather than as an authorial intent, to whom are you addressing them? If you're like a, a you know, a, an idiot on Twitter, you address them to people... Who already agree with you? You all chorus together and you stand inside your echo chamber and you're deafened by the sheer joy of how how popular your views are. Or do you address them to people who don't agree with you? Isn't that better? Don't you address yourself to the people who don't think the way you do? If you believe your views are better views, then you don't have to shout. You have to explain. You have to reason. So if someone has a problem with uh, Dr. Who's best friend being gay, explain to them why and why that's fine. And don't start that explanation with the words, you're a bigoted idiot. <laughs> don't, because it doesn't work. You might think it in your mind, and in some respects it might even be true. But that's not the point. What if you made them a less, big, less bigoted and less idiotic because you were reasonable and kind uh, in talking about this? <coughs> sorry i keep coughing that's okay. so i find that um i find that detestable we can't keep calling people idiots and wicked and wrong just because they don't agree with us that's arrogant now in the case of you know bill bill was very very popular and we didn't do what i think maybe some people might have feared uh which was uh we didn't People always use the expression rammed down my throat when it comes to talking gay issues, and I do wonder if their minds have wandered. <laughs> um, it's, you know, it's, uh, I, the rule was, he talks about being gay in the way that the people you know who are gay talk about it. In other words, not at all. <laughs> not at all. We never use the word gay. We never use the word lesbian, ever. Because why, you don't go around saying that. We just, it just, when it was relevant, when she was on a date or discussing someone she was attractive, it was always clear that it was a woman. Um, that was it. That was all we did. It doesn't stop some of some more irate people saying, Bill had to mention she was a lesbian in every single episode. Literally never used the word, and it wasn't in every single episode of a half of them that, that it came up at all. Because when you're battling giant insects from in the ninth dimension, discussing the fact you date your own gender, isn't that the top of your mind?
0: <laughs> well, now S- Cybermen. I really do want to talk about Cybermen. Um, okay. <laughs> no, it, um, I, I mean, I never thought, at the age of forty three, I'd get excited by uh, you know the expression "they're Mondasian Cybermen." Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think Doctor Who fans see body horror where other people see a man in a cardboard hat. Um, and and I've always loved the 10th planet Cybermen but knowing yeah. that's because the idea they're portraying is perhaps less effective than the, the, the sort of bulky um, realisation of them and, yeah. and indeed they were abandoned after that first story for something sleeker but it's still yeah. this iconic design. so how do you take a design that even then was sort of deemed as unsuccessful in a way oh. And actually create something real. Well, one, even contemplate going, you know, I'm sure you wouldn't have gone, let's make the Venom Grubs again in the same way that they did in The Red Planet. But somehow you took something that even didn't particularly work at the time, even though, as I say, it's effective for Doctor Who fans, um, and make it this really spooky, effective, modern menace, modern take on... On, a, on an old design. How did you make that work and did you ever think it might not? Venom grubs are a great idea. No, I think, it. <laughs> they enough. were, they? That's a <laughs> they brilliant are. idea. Yeah. We could probably do the now. Chris, are you listening? No. Um, well, how
1: did we do that? Well, um, first of all, yes, you're correct. The actual history of that is that they liked the idea of the monster uh, and didn't like the costume. So they more or less restaged the Tenth Planet with an incredibly similar story, as you know. Called Moonbase, uh, but with, in their view, better monsters. And I think history's judgment is is pretty clear on the point that it was the silver-faced Cybermen with those strange smiles that became the icon, not the cloth-faced ones. But uh, again, it was it was in public when uh, Peter Capaldi was being asked about what monsters he wanted to bring back, uh, and he said, "Oh yes, the Mundassian Cyberman." And I said, oh, for goodness sake, they're just kids with jumpers pulled over their heads. They look stupid. And he said, no, but we could do it in a modern way. We could find a way to do that. So that struck a chord. I thought, you know, Peter's very strong visually and he knows he's Doctor Who. So is there something we could do with the and Cybermen? Chiefly because, as Peter admitted later, he just liked saying Mondassian. <laughs> um, so I, uh, what I thought was, make it clear within the story that they're not kids with jumpers over their heads, start from another angle. So we started with the patients coming out of the list. So you just see, you know, it's, it's very, it's like a crudely bandaged face and there's a sort of a knot at the top where it's been tied. So they look crippled and injured and by degrees take it to a um, a Mondasian Cyberman. But this time you never fail to see the horrifically injured a human at the heart of this new machine. So you emphasize that first. You say, look, here's a suffering person. And here's how we've cured them. But look, they're a monster now. So that gave it pathos. So by the time that monster emerges at the end of the episode, you've been educated, in a way, about what you're looking at. If that's not a jumper pulled over his head. Those are bandages. And inside that is, he, is the remains of a human being. And in fact, in this horrific case, the remains of Bill Potts. I think that makes it work. I think," says he, boasting endlessly <laughs> about how clever he is, and awaiting the many savage responses about the size of my ego. Well, it's very small,
0: by the way. <laughs> well, this is this is interesting because <gasps> we've. Uh, 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 I mean, I've I've talked to you. Socially, because I'm one of the um, last of the summer wine um, people oh, yeah. that you alluded to <laughs> in the Radio Times. Thanks for that. Um, yeah. And you are extraordinary. For somebody that comes across as sort of witty and sarcastic on on sort of TV interviews and stuff, you are m- quite self-flagellating. Um, about, and, and so you've got yourself to blame for this, partially because you've just led me to it now, but uh, interviewing Russell was a marvellous experience. But when I talked to him about things that he thought that didn't work there was nothing he just went no nope, it was all marvelous he wasn't going to tell me as an interviewer even though one he was very candid with uh, whereas yeah. you on the other hand uh, i mean in a recent interview you said look this the stuff that the stuff that didn't work so um let's let's prove that you don't <laughs> Let, let's prove that you don't have also, any... you're you're
1: Ooh. tempting me to uh, to attack my own work by saying not to attack better it. Better than Russell,
0: no. which I can never be. Let's n- be honest. No, not it's to a, not not to attack it, but to <laughs> to 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 look at the bits. Just a couple of examples, even that things that didn't work in the way that you'd hope they did, and why you didn't think that was. So that's a way without being critical, but assessing why something perhaps manifests itself in a way less successfully in than in you'd in hoped. A good way. Yeah. Um, it's complicated with doctors. First of all, my assessment on the success or
1: non-success of an episode is almost the least relevant (laughs) opinion you could canvas. Everybody else is better informed than I am because I'm the guy who made all those episodes. And I was the, you know, I didn't make all of it, but I, I was artistically in charge of that, let's say. So it is legitimate to lay blame at my door whenever you don't like it and praise for everybody else whenever you do that's roughly how it goes and that's fine, <laughs> that's legitimate, that's absolutely legitimate um, I forgot where I was going with that um, it's complicated for Doctor Who because um, the shows are very volatile they are very volatile that means, and Chris just sent me uh, an email the other day saying this exact thing um, saying oh my god the the, the distance between brilliant and bull- is so tiny, isn't it? <laughs> you know, and that's the thing. Every episode of Doctor Who was going to be the best one ever at one point, and at another point was going to be the worst. Um. So, in my assessment of the ones that succeed, are the ones where we got what we intended on screen, and the, and the ones where we didn't. Um, sometimes it can be the last minute. The last minute it suddenly comes together. You know, the a slight change to the score an improved special effect, you think, oh, my God, it suddenly works. It suddenly... So I mean, I remember The Doctor's Wife. Everyone was a bit wary of and we're also a bit paranoid about it. Is this Is this really working? And then in the very final stages, it all came together the way we originally intended it when it was a script. Other shows, on the other hand, you think, <coughs> um, those, those just didn't quite nail it. Um... I, I, I watched uh, the one I'm always slagging off, uh, The Beast Below, the other day, because uh, I was looking back at the times when I had a job, <laughs> and I, uh, I, uh, I really enjoyed it. After all the times that I slagged it off, I thought, oh, it's rather good, actually. It's very funny. It's quite clever. Um, at the same time, I could see it was far too arch that we, having taken the idea of Britain on a spaceship, which is really cool, we went too far with it. We just made a sort of scuzzy spaceship uh, that looked like modern London uh, in a big factory, and that's what it was. And you say, "Oh, hang on, it doesn't look like a spaceship. You've taken all the magic away. If it's not a spaceship, this Brit, uh, we so we got that wrong." Uh, and there was just something—it was—it always felt like a show that was making a point, but without ever actually making one. You know, the perfect circumstances for a political satire, in which no satire occurred. Um, so that. Uh, was one that I didn't think worked as well. Um, The the shows of which I think there are better versions. um, I think it's unfair to talk about them, but generally speaking, especially ones not written by me, but uh, sometimes you think that's, that was going to be great. And we never, we never quite nailed it. We never quite made what we were trying to make. But the thing is, it's really hard when you make a Doctor when you, you've got you make it in a little over two weeks, um, and you're and you're um, if you have a couple of bad shooting days or people make bad choices, that's that's quite a chunk of the episode. That's not as good as it should be. Uh, I never thought I'll uh, to give an example uh, in Time of the Doctor, an episode I very much like. That we nailed the very eerie idea of the weeping angels approaching through the snow. I never thought we quite got there. And I remember being slightly frustrated that uh, the scene between um, the doctor and Tasha Lem was too flirtatious. I would sort of, what I was looking for was, uh, you know, it was like the doctor meeting his first girlfriend, you know, and she's now the Pope and he's now Doctor Who, so all that's (laughs) out the window, you know, they're just, so they have a certain knowledge of each other, but it's from a long time ago and they're at ease, and I think, I think it went a bit too River Song when we, because everyone loves the river, so they sort of made her into another river, Um, and and actually every other scene was great, so I remember thinking, no, we need to take that down, that's not what that's about. And I remember thinking, God, those scenes are consecutive. Those bits that I don't like quite as much are consecutive, uh, and that that bothered me. But having said that, and again, I watched it the other day, I thought it was rather a lovely episode, so I, I, uh, and Jimmy Payne did a great job on it. So I'm, I'm picking at things. I mostly, I'm afraid, horribly, I mostly think Doctor Who really works. It's a really good show. I think in many years to come, when it takes another rest, many, many years, people might look back at this run of television and say, the hell, how did all those writers end up working on that mm. kids' adventure serial early Saturday evening? How did that happen? How did they keep it so good for so long? But while we live inside it, um, people take so much of it for granted. So much. Uh, I mean, just even just the production values. Look, this week we've got a submarine. A whole submarine beautifully realised in a studio in Cardiff. And we knocked it down a week later and built a planet. You know, it's quite it's quite something. But you, you certainly can't appreciate the value of what you have while it's still in your hand. So I guess that's normal. But no, of course everything didn't work as well as it could have. A lot of Doctor Who worked brilliantly, I thought. And my opinion is irrelevant. I sit and stare at the bits that are wrong. And that's no way to watch telly, is it?
0: No, well, and also, I, I mean, I f- I'm feeling guilty now. It's it's the, the the thrust of this podcast has always been very very positive, and perhaps it's a sign of the times that I have oh, to ask ask uh, to me ask a, ask a, to a question. Crap. Going, what, what don't you like? So let's do the other side of that coin. Which which bits perhaps exceeded your expectations or what, what were the really pleasant surprises when you went into work or saw an episode or or, or the fallout of an episode and went, wow, well, that was actually better than I hoped, and, and why? I'm afraid there's an
1: awful lot of them. That's there's all an right. awful lot of them. Most of, I think, Doctor Who is a really, really good show, and frankly, when it's not as good a show, it's still a really good show. I think I've told you before, but I can't remember if it was on this or in the pub, that I, at one point, trying to sort of reconnect with the show after doing a bit of Sherlock. I decided to watch uh, a couple of episodes from each of the modern series, which were the ones I'd watched the least often, because I liked them the least, let's be clear. But I'm not revealing which ones they are, and yes, I wrote some of them, and yes, I exact some of them, and sometimes did both, Uh, and I watched the ones that I liked least, and I thought, my God, if these are the bad episodes, this is an awfully <laughs> good show. So forgive me, but I do actually think it's a great show. I mean, the, um, the 11th hour was, the, uh, was, was one that shot out the starting gate. You know, nobody, but nobody, but nobody, but nobody thought that it was going to work me taking over from Russell and Matt taking over from from David. Nobody, including my own wife, thought we had a chance <laughs> in hell. They all admitted that to me. They're saying, I thought you'd made the stupidest decision of your life and hoped you'd survive it. So nobody thought that was going to work. And although the plot is a rolling mess, and I never quite work at what uh, Prisoner Zero is or why the villains keep changing the plans every two minutes, it it is such a glorious first episode. I think it's superb. It absolutely sells Matt as your new hero, Karen as your new hero, and slips in without admitting he's really going to be a hero. Rory as well. And you're. I think you're. When when the episode ends and Matt and Karen take off in the TARDIS. You're ready to follow to the end of the universe, which we provided about 11 episodes later. Um, Vincent and the Doctor in that first series, absolutely amazing. A discussion of suicide and depression from Richard Curtis in the form of Doctor Who. One of the best episodes ever made, I think. Absolutely beautiful. Has a strong argument to be the best Doctor Who ever made. The finale was a stormer, I thought. Uh, and, the, and my first Christmas, I was delighted with. In the second series, what was you know, we had the Doctor's wife, which was troubled in some ways, but became such a brilliant and defining episode from Neil Gaiman. Uh, the girl who waited from Tom McRae, a tiny little chamber piece, you know, it's a, a, a quartet for three, because uh, you've got only three characters in it, one of them twice. Uh, that was utterly brilliant. I loved that. Uh, what other ones? I mean, ah. Uh, I love Asylum of the Daleks, I'm not sure people like that one very much, but I, I loved it. And uh, uh, I loved, uh, well, was it, I yes, we had um, Cold War that year, which uh, I, I loved, and the name of the Doctor, and because the, the day of the Doctor, the day of the Doctor was a huge, was a huge thing, because we said it would be huge, and we said it would be good, and it, I said it'd be this year's Olympics. Uh, but only an hour and fifteen minutes long, and with no money. So uh, that was, you know, I think that delivered everything it was supposed to deliver. Some of it twice. So I thought, you know, come on, we didn't screw up there. We really didn't. Um, oh God, me. I mean, uh, I love. Uh, I, I I I just watched it the other day. So it's in my mind, uh, Robot of Sherwood. <laughs> it's so funny. Just I was hooting at that one. Uh, such a cheeky idea. Uh, and the Doctor and Robin Hood both being real to each other, and uh, listen, I was quite fond of, and and Jamie came along, so I got Jamie Matheson along with Flatline and Mummy on the Orient Express, and then we had Santa Claus, Santa Claus met Doctor Who, which was a very important thing to happen in the culture of this world. And <coughs> really, I, I pretty much loved all of season nine, I have to say, it might even be my secret favorite, but uh, I I was thrilled with just about every episode of that. But uh, I suppose I would point to Heaven Sent out of that one because that's a difficult thing to do. That's mm. properly difficult. That's just one man in a versus a castle and uh, slow-moving Jeopardy. <laughs> and 55 minutes of it, dear Lord. I also, although I have a sneaky suspicion, that the best bit of Heaven Sent is actually in Hell Bent. Uh, that, you, that you don't really get the impact of Heaven Sent until you get the scene with Clara and the Doctor in Hellbent where, where she slowly, piece by piece, figures out what he's done to get here yeah. and to get her back. And she says, four and a half billion years. Why did you do that? And he sort of <laughs> shrugs and says, I had a duty of care, as if it's nothing. And I remember saying, that's, that's actually the best scene in Heaven Sent, and it's not in it. Um... And then season 10, well, that was that was a lovely line-out, season 10, wasn't it? Uh, Nardole and mm. Bill and the Doctor, so I was really pleased with that. I mean, again, I think I might have been pretty much delighted with every episode in that one, uh, disgracefully. Uh, and then I thought, you know, and my last, last commando crawl through all the corpses to the finish line, which was starting to be visible in the distance, and so I realised I had three more scripts to write oh dear lord, my mother had just died, it was a bleak time and I was uh, I was thinking and I wrote uh, World Enough in Time and The Doctor Falls and I was really pleased with that, I thought Rachel directed it beautifully I thought the performances were so stellar, you know when you're looking at, you've got Peter Capaldi and Matt Lucas and Pearl Mackey and Michelle Gomez and John Sim all standing there giving it everything. That is one hell of a cast. That is one hell of a cast. And of course, uh, after that, I did um, uh, the Christmas one, which you haven't seen, but everybody else in the universe has seen by this point, uh, and which I was just extremely excited to see. The very image of William Hartnell wandering around the set of the modern show, at times there are moments that you will have seen by the time this goes, uh, goes live, where there are moments when uh, David Bradley steps into shot, where he captures him so perfectly you think it could be him. You could freeze frame, put it in black and white and fool people. Uh, it's, such a, it's, it's so cleverly judged. Uh, So yes, I liked all of it, just like Russell. In the end, in the end, we're exactly the same. It's Doctor Who, it's in colour, and I got to watch it in a nice warm room on a comfy sofa what the hell is there to object to?
0: <laughs> well look I'll, I'll i'll wind i'll wind up as quickly as i can because you've given me so much time i'm grateful it was about three years ago today you last did this so thank you it's uh, been three years too i think it is yeah um so uh, but you mentioned the the, the first doctor in uh, in in the christmas special that i haven't seen uh, it's also the last two hour of Peter Capaldi so take me through through uh, i mean Peter how 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 long did it come to you to, to settle upon him as your as your next piece of casting for the doctor and, and how 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 was he you know how was he as your leading man tell tell me about that journey with him well i mean it was it was the name that popped into my brain
1: uh, and and wouldn't leave was what if peter capaldi was the doctor cuz you know he is um, it's not controversial he's one of the finest actors alive I happened to know he was a Doctor Who fan, and I knew him slightly. And I was sort of thinking, what if nobody ever does this? What if no one ever asks him to be Doctor Who? We'd never see his Doctor Who. Wouldn't that be awful? Wouldn't that be a tragedy? And I thought it was time to, again, slightly loosen our vision of the Doctor, because our vision of the Doctor by that stage had pretty much settled on a quirky young man. That's what it, you know. I mean, uh, that that sounds very reductive, but you know what I mean. We we couldn't just go casting for another quirkily attractive young man with unusual hair. You know, there's look, I mean, there's people you could cast to be brilliant, but you think, oh, the formula is becoming apparent. So switching him up thirty years and reminding you that he's the the grand old beast of the universe, uh, not your boyfriend, uh, was. Uh, I thought useful. It widens our idea of who the Doctor is and uh, when Jodie comes along our idea of who the Doctor is gets even wider but you have to keep doing that. Next time I think we should go with the Matt Lucas suggestion
0: and cast the Doctor as twins. That'd be excellent. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and what about Peter himself? What was his approach to, the, to, to, to playing the part and, and how collaborative was that?
1: Um, well, it's always collaborative when you're playing, uh, when you know, you're working with the Doctor. Uh, because, as I keep saying, and it is more true even than I realise now that I'm writing the novelization, you realise the Doctor is the Doctor. He just is the Doctor. You are him on page, on the page, pretty much the same. It's not that different. Um, it's what the Doctor, what, it's what the new Doctor brings to it that changes the focus of the part. Um... And uh, I can't remember the details now, but he was, he, just, he, he I remember i remember in his, he had a, a very, very interesting moment at the end of Series 8, his first year when he came back in and said, look, uh, I don't want to play the 12th Doctor. I want to play the Doctor. I don't want to be, I he felt he'd been emphasising the differences too much, uh, in a way. Uh, he, he wanted to just say, look, He's just the Doctor, the Doctor, the one and only. He's looking the other way. He doesn't know his face is different. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and so he, I think he, I mean, it was already a brilliant performance, but he expanded to the performance that he, that he had always been aiming for, I think, at the beginning of Series 9, uh, which uh, I, th- I, th- I thought he was thrillingly brilliant. Um, he's a lovely man, Peter. Lovely, uh, highly educated, highly refined very sweet, very funny man. So he's a joy to work with. He's also a worrier, though they have all been warriors. I mean, he worries about his work. He's always fretting about something. Uh, and, uh, and he's always warning you, the things I worry about might just be nonsense. He always says that. Here is my opinion of this, but I might be talking nonsense. Uh, you know, that way. And, and it wouldn't be modesty. He'd actually be saying, standing inside a park doesn't mean you're always the best judge of what you should be doing. He was always very, very focused and very clear about that, but he was absolute joy to it. But also, you know, he's self-evidently brilliant, you know, he just, he, he charges that screen with uh, an energy that you can't, you can't even work out how he's doing it sometimes. Uh, his ability to let you know what he's thinking without moving one tiny piece of his face I think is unique. He just sort of beams at you out of his eyes and you know where the Doctor is and what he's pained about or what he's joyful about. You can just feel it. But, you know, he could go through it by frame by frame. He doesn't seem to have done anything. I think he acts by telepathy sometimes. (laughs) Um, But, you know, an absolutely brilliant, brilliant man, an extraordinary Doctor. His final moments that you will have seen, Uh, it's just, it's a masterclass in how you do it. It really is.
0: Well, look, we'll also have seen your final, your your final moments on screen. So, what's next for you, Stephen? Outside of, well, how do you put Doctor Who behind you, and what what do you want to do um, to top to top it for the rest of your days?
1: <laughs> uh... Regret, nostalgia, <laughs> drinking problem. Uh, what am I going to do? Uh, well, first of all, I feel no impulse about the, the topic thing. I think that's a, that's a very mad way to go. If you start thinking, will I ever have such a triumph again? The answer is no. Of course you won't. Why would you have that again? I got to be, for several years of my life, the guy doing Sherlock and Doctor Who. Right? <laughs> I got that for several years. That was that was amazing. I top that. I don't think so. I never thought I'd, I'd get that high in the first place. That was, that's amazing. So uh, I'm not worried about that. I'm not worried about profile or ambition or career, certain thing, you know, I mean, it's, it's you know, I've, I'm have i not starving, to, to put it mildly. Um, so I don't, I, I want to write the things I haven't been writing and I want to write different things. And uh, if some of them are colossal failures, then... That will be <laughs> then that's just proof of inevitability. Some of them will be. Uh, some of them will be terrible. But I want I don't want to think that I just repeated myself for the rest of my life. So I would like to write as differently as I can. I've just been writing a play, which as I keep saying, they never see the light of day. And then after, you know, a break of a whole two months from Doctor Who, I started work on the Doctor Who novelization of uh, Day of the Doctor, which I'm thoroughly enjoying, I have to say. Very, it's really quite refreshing to be writing about the Doctor in a different medium, um, though it's com- complex since the three main characters are the same person <laughs> on different days. <laughs> so you keep wondering how to refer to them, given that they don't know about their own numbers, it's quite complicated. Oh, yeah. But anyway, um, uh, so and after that, we've oh, got Dracula. Mark and I have got a, a take on Dracula that we're very excited about. So we're going to start working. We'll be doing a good part of next year will be devoted to Dracula Uh, and uh, I mean I've I've got generally quite a few things Um, I mean there's uh, you know if it's got star in the title it's probably been offered to me at some point Uh, I'm not looking to have another monster show running job (laughs) but wait and see uh, because I think so much time will pass that I'll be even older by the time it's over so I don't necessarily want to do that. Um, uh, just write interesting stuff. I hope. I know that I don't top this. That uh, you know that that piece of ambition has been taken care of, and I don't have to worry about it. I spent a few years being a properly hot writer. <laughs> now I can just go back to being a jobbing writer, uh, not doing any interviews ever again, and uh, well, at least not any print interviews any ever again because I can't stand them, and uh, just carry on. Well, Do something or other. Go to
0: the pub. Well, thanks for doing this one. It's much appreciated. Um, uh, there's only two, two more questions. One, it's a charitable endeavour. This. Um, uh, so, what, what charity would you like to nominate for the listeners to donate to in lieu of you and I not getting paid for doing it? Oh Lord,
1: um, is there a Parkinson's? Charity, I'm sure there is.
0: Yeah, I'll look one uh, up, and I'll well, or yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll give them a list of several.
1: I mean, yeah. I think I've, I already, I think, contribute to that because uh, my mum died of Parkinson's. So how about that? Uh, okay,
0: that one. Yeah, we'll do that. <laughs> um, and yeah. the final question, which I've saddled everybody with, this was: What is your Stephen Moffat? What is your message to the Doctor Who fans listening out there?
1: Have you tried Sherlock? Um, no, I, uh, I don't. What, what, what do I say? A uh, message to Doctor Who fans. Um, it will outlive you all. Well, that's, that's
0: a positive <laughs> message for the new year. Um, I'll, we'll, we'll finish our conversation properly outside of this uh, podcast, but for the purposes of this part of our conversation and for giving your time once again to this silly endeavour, uh, Stephen Moffat, thank you very much. Cheers. Bye, then. Bye. Uh, my thanks to Stephen for breaking off his work and his build-up to Christmas. I hope you had a good one, by the way, everybody. Um, and his still busy schedule and the fact that is an extraordinarily big cheese and doesn't need to uh, spread himself on my cracker. Um, so thanks to Stephen Moffat and for Sue to Sue Cowley, who uh, who uh, helped set that up. Thanks, Sue. Uh, I'd also like to thank for all their help this year um, um, Paul and Dexter at Phantom Films, who've set up uh, or helped facilitate a, a, quite a large chunk of these this year, uh, and also to especially to Ian Atkins, who who. Um, Sort of gets these online and listens to them Make sure they're all right, make sure that you can hear them properly And that um, they've all been put together with some form of competence And he does so very cheerily He does so often at the very last minute And he does so without ever complaining Thank you Ian, you are a superstar And the power behind the Who's Round Throne I'm just the jester Um, But I'm a very tired jester So um, I'm taking January off I'm sorry about that I'm speaking at 2.35 in the morning uh, before you hear this, if you listen to it the day it goes out. And this is getting ridiculous, because <laughs> this is not what I do for a living. Um, that's why you're getting a trailer for The Sons of Kaldor afterwards, because I'm in that as an actor, because that's my job. Um, and I've only got about 16 left in the back. I don't know if I'm going to do any more. I'm going to see how January goes, because um, I've got lots of other things to do, um, and I have to earn a living. Um... Uh, but I have got other people I want to interview So it depends, it depends I might just come back after a short hiatus And um, just put together those ones that are still waiting to be done Or I might find that I miss it And uh, line up lots of interviews with voc robots and production managers um, But um, for now, um, the Doctor has prescribed me a rest Thanks Doctor Who And uh, so you will hear from me Um, Sometime after January. Let's see what happens. But for now, this is the last Who's Round of 2017. And uh, it will be starting again in 2018 after a bit of a break. So I hope you have a happy new year. All the best to you for 2018. And I will rejoin you in that year, at some point. But for now, this is me, Toby Haydock, asking you to donate to Stephen Moffat's charity. He mentioned Parkinson's. Now, there's Parkinson's UK Research, which is parkinson's.org.uk forward slash research, or yeah, you can just have parkinson's.org.uk, actually, parkinson's.org.uk. Um, if you're in America, there's Michael J. Fox.org, uh, donate underscore now. Uh, which is uh, Michael J. Fox's Parkinson's charity, uh, if you're uh, over there in the States. But Stephen um, just said anything to help Parkinson's, so that would be marvellous. I'm going to stop talking now. I should have stopped talking ages ago.
1: Bye. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions, Doctor Who. The Fourth Doctor Adventures. The Sons of Kaldor.
0: <gasps> doctor? Well, well, well. Oh, it is one of the mechanical men. Yes,
1: certainly a Kaldor robot. There are intruders in the medical unit.
0: How many? Two life readings. What is that? Who is there? <laughs> ah! Let go! Let go of me! You must not strike them. hand. Why not?! There is someone on the other floor You must be silent. You're intruders.
1: Please, please, there's no need to be afraid. Keep, keep back. Don't you realise something has gone very wrong here?
0: If they come through that door, I will not run. I will face them. If they want a fight, they will have one. I do not want to die.
1: Big finish. We love stories.